You are listening to John Diard's Life Spa, your premier source for health news in Ayurveda, where modern science meets ancient wisdom. Hi, everybody. I'm Dr. John Diard, and welcome to the Life Spa podcast. Today, we have a really special guest, author of the book Yoga Therapy for Diabetes, a really important topic. And the author, uh, Evan Soroka, is here with us. And I'm super honored to have you here, Evan. I'd love for you to just maybe tell us a little bit about your background, how you got started, and what this book is about. Thank you. I'm honored to be here as well. I'm a type 1 diabetic. I've been living with type 1 diabetes, which is an autoimmune condition, for 23 years now. So I was diagnosed at the age of 13. And shortly after my diagnosis, I picked up a yoga practice. And that's the beginning of the rest of my life. I've gone on to become a certified yoga therapist and dedicate my work specifically for people with all types of diabetes, but especially type 1 diabetes. You know, what I was really blown away about by your book was the, the, the depth that you went into with regard to the science. I feel like anybody who has diabetes type 1 or type 2 can really understand the science and the physiology underneath, you know, the different types of diabetes. And um, I thought that was, and whether you're a doctor or a yoga therapist or anyone, I think it's really important to have that, have that real depth of knowledge because it doesn't, it's hard to get that real clarity on what's really happening on every different kind and aspect of diabetes. I also thought what I was blown away by was just my own self. You know, we all know that in the, in the Ayurvedic stress world, that stress, you know, is really important and Ayurveda helps us deal with stress. But you laid out the, the pathophysiology of how stress is directly linked to diabetes. And we know, and I've seen the studies when people meditate, they, people who are meditate, they don't get as much, they don't have diabetes and their blood sugar is much better. But what I thought was really cool was that you laid out how that actually happens, what's the pathways of that. I thought that it would be such a cool thing, particularly in these times where everybody seems to be more stressed than ever before you know, to really understand, you know, why, you know, not only in a diabetic way, but for sure, that's the focus here. But, you know, because that same sort of like, however, you're genetically predisposed to break down, you're gonna, if you're diabetically predisposed, stress is going to wipe you out. But if it's something else, it's sort of the same upstream cause. And that mechanism is so important. I wonder if you could just share us a little bit about that. Definitely. You know, you could replace the word diabetes in this book with any chronic disease. And you could say that this book is also a manual about how stress occurs and how stress impacts us both positively and negatively and the pathophysiology behind it. So it was really important to me as an educator to supply that background because there is a lot of misinformation, not only in the holistic community, but also the medical community about what is diabetes and how to work with it. And so I wanted to offer a manual that would help therapists, teachers, medical practitioners, people with diabetes alike to have a firm background and understanding of the causes. So if we can understand the cause, we can understand what the effect is. And if we can't completely understand what the effect is because of that knowledge of why and how, we can begin to infer and guesstimate 
and empower ourselves to make adaptive changes. You know, that's, that is sort of exactly, you know, you know, you're, you're preaching to the choir here. I mean, I feel like that's exactly how I practice Ayurveda is I keep asking, and this is the interesting thing, is in, in, in Western medicine, the most brilliant minds that we have, they don't seem to want to ask that next question, like, what is the upstream cause of this or that? You know, and or Ayurveda, that's all we do is like if you have, you know, some condition, like you said, we can plug in a different condition. Now you got to ask, you know, what's the, the storyboard of how the physiology broke down over time, particularly like in type two diabetes, but even in type one, you know, there's usually some, whether it be a virus or some event that triggered this. And, and uh, I'd love for you to dive into the minutiae here a little bit and tell us, maybe, you know, maybe start with type one, like, like, do we have any insight into what those triggers are for type one? So it's something that I've been asking myself since I was diagnosed. I don't have a family history of type one diabetes. What caused this? And there's quite a bit of research out there trying to correlate the causative factors behind type one diabetes, but nothing is affirmative. We could look at stress. There are some things that corroborate stress with the onset of type one diabetes, as well as environmental factors, illness, virus, like you mentioned. These are all things that can potentially turn on the pathways. Certain environments, I mean, if you look at certain locations like Sweden and Sardinia, these places have skyrocketing numbers of people with type one diabetes comparative to other locations. And so we have to ask ourselves, yeah, why, why is that? Is there some sort of environmental factor that's turning on these uh, triggers to develop an autoimmune disease? That's incredible because Sardinia is one of the blue zones, you know, where the people live to be also over a hundred on a regular basis. So that I, doesn't even like, yes, yeah. Talk but about that. For me, I was, I was, um, I was born late. I was like two or three weeks late. And the first two weeks of my life, I was in an incubation tank, not like an incubation tank, but whatever they put you in, in postnatal care. Um, and I was pumped through it with antibiotics the first two weeks of my life. And I had chronic sinus infections as a child and was constantly on antibiotics. So that's the only link. There are some links with antibiotics and the development of type one diabetes. But for me personally, you know, I, I can't pinpoint the why. Now it's really about how, how do we work with this? Cause it's not going away. You know, what's interesting is um, I wrote a, a lot, I've written a lot of articles about the lymphatic system, like in Ayurveda, it's rasa, and the rasa datu is the first major tissue that supports all the other tissues in the body, and how that's, that's you know, breaks down, then the whole chain breaks down, and um, rasa is lymph, and um, there's newly discovered lymphs in the brain, right? You've probably heard about the glymphatic system that drain like three pounds of plaque out of your head every year while you sleep, and um, they've linked, and, and uh, they've linked um, congestion of those brain lymphatics now, and they only discovered them about 15 years ago, um, to anxiety, depression, cognitive decline, inflammation, infection, and autoimmune concerns. So there actually is a mechanism in the medical journals, not in medical practice yet, but that su supports the idea that the body would sort of turn on itself because the master computer, which is trying to get rid of its trash to the tune of three pounds per year, 
can't do that. So the brain doesn't know how many fire trucks to send to the fire on Main Street. So it sends one or a hundred and that's what an autoimmune reaction is. So obviously, you know, this is theoretical, but it is something that, that, you know, there aren't really, there isn't really in medical science a mechanism to understand autoimmunity yet, but there are studies that show that that does take place when the lymphatic system, which is newly discovered and newly researched, although Ayurveda had ways of cleaning the brain out using nausea techniques for thousands of years. And they knew that all this lymph in the brain drains into the paranasal sinuses. So they use the sinuses as a tool to detoxify the brain, right? And I wonder if that's sort of like in your case, it does fit, but doesn't always fit, you know, with everybody else. Everybody has their own story, right? Right. Everyone has their own story. But again, if we can look at all of these potential pathways, it gleans more wisdom into the potentiality of how we can begin to avoid the onset if you have the predisposition for autoimmune diseases genetically. And it's also true that, you know, kids are really lymphy anyway, you know, they're in the kapha mm. time of their life, right? So if there was mm -hmm. ever a time where they're going to get asthma, a lymph congestion or sinus infections or eczema, which is lymph through the skin, you know, it, it's, it's if, in, in my mind, that was where I, I would point if I was you know, heading up a research team, I say that might be a good place to look is check out the, the function of the brain, which they can do now with an MRI and look and see if the brain lymphs are really draining very well. Kind of really, really fascinating. Um, the other piece of that puzzle is going back to, to stress. Um, you know, can you explain to us how stress actually does cause, you know, predispose us to either type one or even type two diabetes? What's that mechanism? Absolutely. Well, the, the pathways for type two are more clear with stress. And so this is the pathway of many chronic diseases, but it's autonomic dysfunction. So it's a hyperactivation of the HPA axis as well as the sympathetic nervous system. And so the production of stress hormones like epinephrine and norepinephrine and cortisol what their job is to do is to produce a counter-regulatory response to our blood sugars dropping. So the production of insulin is what drops our blood sugars or takes glucose out of our bloodstream and transports glucose into our cells, our muscle cells for either storage or immediate use. But our counter-regulatory response to that in non-diabetic physiology is to produce stress hormones that help us harvest glucagon, um, excuse me, glycogen from our liver. So glucagon is the hormone that's produced, harvest glycogen from the liver, and that's what increases our blood sugar. So when we're under stress, whether that's an acute stressor or chronic stress, we have those stress hormones circulating. And what they do is they potentiate glucagon, and they suppress insulin. So it can be a precursor for something known as insulin resistance. And insulin resistance in type 2 diabetes, although type 1s can also experience insulin resistance of the insulin that they inject into their body, it's called exogenous insulin. Type 2s produce their own insulin. And so that is the mechanism that underlies so much of what we know as prediabetes and then the progressive onset of type two diabetes. I read a, um, a couple of studies recently that, that one came out like two weeks ago 
that show that people who eat breakfast, for example, uh, have significant, significant reduction of type 2 diabetes in their life. People who don't eat breakfast are more at risk to that. And, um, and uh, it was, what, I, what I've been fascinated about is the circadian rhythms of mm -hmm. blood sugar, where in the wee hours of night, 2 o'clock, insulin resistance goes you know, way down, where the body is really sucking up around 2 o'clock in the morning a lot of sugar, right? Then around four o'clock, you know, the game changes, right? Where all of a sudden insulin resistance starts to get higher. And then we have this sort of this, you know, um, kind of dawn phenomena where the blood sugar starts to rise. And, uh, and, and, I, and I'm assuming, and you can probably, you know, help me on, understand if I got the right idea here, is that when you have a breakfast early on, of course, your blood sugar goes up, but that triggers the insulin and the metabolism to drive it into your cells. Like, oh, there's food. I got to deliver it, right? So the you know delivery man is here, and we got to go deliver something. But if you don't have the food, you don't deliver it. Um, the blood sugars just continue to rise as a way to uh, to do that. And then, um, so I, I wonder if you could comment on that. If that's something that you know from a type two diabetic because that's a yeah, that's my question. Yeah, I have more questions. So many more questions for you. Yeah, well, we're talking about the fasting and fed state, right? So when we're in a yeah. fed state, our body's producing insulin to digest our food, and then when we're in a fasting state, we're producing glucagon to increase our blood sugars. So you know, I'm not familiar as much with that research, but what I can say is that from my own experience of wearing a continuous glucose monitor and living with type one diabetes, I'm intimately connected with the wee hours of the night and what happens to my blood sugar levels and my insulin resistance. And there is a consistent trend around three, four o'clock in the morning where we start to see that glycogen dump, right? Where our blood sugars just start to go up. There's the insulin resistance. Our liver is dumping glycogen. And what we're experiencing is that counter-regulatory response, which is intended for our body to be, per like you're talking about the circadian rhythm. We want to have the energy for our day. So that's what happens naturally, biologically. Um, and I'm not as familiar with the research for type two diabetes and how that could be a mechanism um, for per perhaps the onset of type two diabetes um, for people who don't eat breakfast. But what I could only imagine is that it's putting the body into more of that fasting state where they're technically under stress. Right. Right. So for you, if you have breakfast, does that does that help mitigate that dawn phenomenon? Is that one of the things that you do? Or is it better for you not to eat? I mean, it's tricky, I know. It's tricky. For me, with type 1 diabetes, I am actually the most insulin resistant in the morning. So even having a cup of black coffee will require insulin for me. Okay. The first okay. thing I do when I wake up is I give myself fast-acting insulin to right. counteract that insulin resistance, knowing that I'm going to need, just to get my day going, I'm going to need some insulin. And that makes perfect sense, right? Because that's what the studies show. You're going to be more insulin resistant at that time of the day. Um, if you're pre-diabetic or type 2 diabetic, that, that meal may actually help open the gates to the cells and let the sugar in. But if you're, 
you know, type one diabetic and you may have become somewhat resistant to insulin over time, that may, that may, that may not work for that's with some differences between type one and type two, I would imagine. Definitely. I mean, type one and type two, they are completely separate diseases. And so we tend, when we think about diabetes, we think about type two diabetes because that's the majority of the population, 95% in the United States of people with diabetes are people with type two diabetes. So it's much more common. Yeah. Yeah. It's huge. And it's, what is it? I think uh, the CDC said it was something like um, 90% of the population is, um, uh, or a third of the population is pre-diabetic and 90% of them don't know it kind of a thing. What I'm also curious about is another study that I, that I read is um, walking in Ayurvedic medicine that says you're supposed to take a hundred steps after every meal. That's the tradition. And the studies, as you know, when you walk after a meal, um, it can really get that sugar out of your system. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, but what I wonder is there's a, there's a difference between walking after a meal and vigorous exercise after a meal. Seems like vigorous exercise can have a raised blood sugar where walking can lower blood sugar. There's a difference there. And so I want you to comment that. And then the last part of that question is, is, Studies also show that when you walk after a meal or you exercise, that the, that the sugar can go into the muscles without the needing of insulin when you're actually engaged in activity. So is that the mechanism for that? And does that all work? And what's your experience on that? There's so much in your question, Dr. John. It depends, right? It depends. Okay. It depends on the type of diabetes. But I would say that any type of physical activity, what you're referring to is physical activity where we're moving our bodies, correct? Our heart rate is not elevated, but let's say it's a low intensity, short duration movement. That is going to help potentiate whatever insulin that our body is producing and help our muscles. Well, it's going to help to increase circulation and increase the uptake of glucose from our bloodstream. Now, in the case of someone who has type one diabetes, who has to measure and inject insulin, depending upon how, what's the macronutrient density of the food that they're eating. So they have to calculate not only carbohydrates, but fat, fiber, protein, all of these things are going to digest at a different rate. So the presence of insulin, what that does is it negates or it blocks our body's ability to produce glucagon to bring our blood sugars back up. So when someone takes insulin for a meal and then they go on a walk, they're going to run the chance of becoming hypoglycemia, hypoglycemic for someone with type one diabetes, because there is this extra energy expenditure, right? For a walk. But what someone could potentially do is have the foresight that they're going on a walk and take less insulin, then go on the walk. And what you're doing in that, in that fashion is in a way it's like biohacking in a way it's saying, okay, I'm going to take less insulin because my body is going to go on a walk and it's going to utilize that glucose that's being digested immediately. And so you're creating this balancing act. For someone with type 
to diabetes, they produce their own insulin. And because of that, their body is still able to counter-regulate. Not all type twos can produce their you know, sufficient insulin. Some have to take insulin and that's when they might also experience hypoglycemia. But for someone who doesn't, let's say hypothetically, they go on a walk. What they're doing is supporting their body's digestion. Essentially what we're trying to do is to facilitate our body's metabolic processes make everything easier to do. The more complex our food, the harder it is for us to digest it. And so if we can go on a walk, that's not exercise, not like cardiovascular exercise, it's easier for our body to manage that balance, that, that balancing act. Whereas if I were to increase my heart rate, I'm also increasing physical stress. And we just talked about stress prior to this, but stress can produce the same stress hormones. Physical stress is going to produce some of those same stress hormones. We're not going to be digesting our food, right? So you might have food in your belly, but you're not necessarily digesting it. Right. And so it becomes this kind of complex, it's a balancing act, but it's, in a way it's a guesstimation of, well, when am I gonna start digesting it or how much energy am I expending? What kind of hormones are going to be produced? How's that going to affect my metabolism? And what can I actively choose to do to facilitate it, to make it easier so that I can achieve homeostasis. And we're talking about homeostasis of our blood sugar. So euglycemia, I can achieve that um, through my actions. Because essentially what we're doing with all types of diabetes is we're consciously creating the mechanisms that our biology is doing for us normally without the disease. We're using our minds to make that process happen. And so there's a lot of room for error. Yeah. Oh gosh. Yeah. I can see that. But I could, so, so I always tell my patients that the most, the most dangerous thing you could probably do is have a big old meal and sit down and watch a movie, like just sit after a big meal. And I would imagine, you know, and one of the, I guess when type one diabetes, the idea is just take as least, least amount of insulin as you can and keep the, the highs and lows is to a minimum, right? That's the, that's the number one goal. And I would imagine if you could take less insulin and go for a walk and hack that system, that would be ideal. And the same rule applies for type two diabetes. And if you, in, 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 if you were exercised really vigorously, either type one, type two, or pre-diabetes, or even healthy people, you're going to see your blood sugar numbers go up a little bit, right? If you go into vigorous exercise, because those stress hormones are going to deliver that fuel, right? Unless you've taken insulin and that right. no matter what you're doing is going to make you crash low if you exercise. Right. That's the yeah. dangerous part. You have to be really careful. And that's where you're saying, you know, you know, maybe take a little less insulin and know exactly how much you really have to, it's like a, it's like a, um, you know, Rubik's cube trying to figure out how to keep that blood sugar stable throughout the day when you add food, which is just like explosion to your system. Right. Cause you never yeah, really can it, tell exactly how much you're getting in terms of sugar. It's true. And you can never really tell exactly how, long insulin is active in your system. 
they say short acting insulin lasts like three to five hours. And while that's active in your system, if you add any type of physical activity, it's going to potentiate that and increase your risk for dropping low. So when you're talking about this rubrics cube, I love that analogy because essentially that's what people are trying to do. And that's why the psychological burden of diabetes, both the physiological that we're talking about now, but also how that influences our psychological state and how stress is both this like thing that you're experiencing because of diabetes, because your blood sugars are fluctuating high and low. And it's something that you're feeling viscerally in your body, but also this psychological stress of trying to do the balancing act for yourself. Yeah. It's so like, multidimensional. You know, and that's why I think like yoga and Ayurveda provide such beautiful methods and um, models for someone with diabetes, not only to understand their condition, but to see the highs and lows, to see the ups and downs, and to be able to equate those qualities with like your doshas or the gunas, and then understand how to achieve balance once again. So you, you also mentioned earlier that the one of the upstream causes is that autonomic, you know, nervous system disruption, too much fight or flight sympathetic and and as a result, too little parasympathetic. Um, yeah. For type one and type two, do the same rules apply, the same approach? Because obviously you have a lot of tools in your book about how to increase parasympathetic activity. Do the same rules apply? And what are your, and if so, what are your top ways to make that happen? Wonderful. I would say they do apply, although they are different in some aspects. The, the research out there says that there's four main pathways, four main pathways that, that yoga is going to benefit someone with diabetes. And the first is it's that decreased activation of the HPA axis. So the HPA axis, for those of you out there that are listening, it's what we know produces cortisol, right? And that is what potentiates um, glucose, or excuse me, um, glucagon, that's the hormone that's produced by the pancreas to increase our blood sugars. That's what potentiates it for hours to come. So if we're under chronic stress, um, that system is going to be in hyperdrive and our practices of yoga help to decrease its reactivity, as well as that of the sympathetic branch of the autonomic nervous system. So that's um, that's really the most important part of this mechanism for all people with chronic illness is how do you work on modulating that? How do you work on potentiating its function? Because I think cognitively for so many of us, we think, well, stress is bad, but what we're not seeing is that chronic stress, what it's doing is actually exhausting the function of these very important and vital systems. And so what yoga, meditation, living a sattvic lifestyle is gonna help us do as we're managing our stress is to help retain the function of these autonomic processes that are so essential. So something I talk about quite a bit um, with my students is how well, hypoglycemia is a big issue for people, especially with type one diabetes. And 
the symptoms of hypoglycemia are the same symptoms of like stress. So epinephrine produces visceral sensations of like your heart beating faster, um, decreased circulation, you start to sweat, you start to feel anxiety, right? It's the same feeling. But when you've taxed your nervous system, we actually adapt to a new normal. And those same responses, those visceral sensations, they're no longer produced. And so it can become very dangerous for people because they're not sensitized. They lack that introceptive awareness to sense that alarm clock, that initial alarm clock, and, and it can become quite dangerous. So yoga is a way for us to reduce that hyperactivity that's going to help us improve our heart rate variability, you know, decrease inflammation, blood pressure, heart rate, all of these things that are so important for us to um, maintain this, this beautiful like orchestration of homeostasis. We need to be able to potentiate that. And that leads me into my second pathway, which is the increased activation of like vagal tone and the parasympathetic branch. So most of us are very familiar with with these terms, especially like in the holistic world. Um, But the more readily that we can train our nervous system to downregulate by strengthening this heart rate variability via the vagus nerve, um, the easier it is for us to manage stress, right? Because we want a healthy nervous system that can move both upregulate and can also downregulate. Yeah, it seems to me like, you know, you know, downregulating sympathetic and is a little trickier, well, at least than upregulating parasympathetic activity. So I wonder, uh, that might not be true. Obviously, you can kind of create a world where you're not stressed, but that's oftentimes a little challenging um, yeah. in this day and age. Um, yeah. Where there's definitely techniques, yoga, breathing, meditation, that are proven to increase your sympathetic, your parasympathetic, you know, vagal response, right? Yeah. So those techniques are they're varied, but just the most simple pathway of doing that is lengthening your breath and breathing in a way that's without tension. So we talk about um, abdominal diaphragmatic breathing lengthening the exhale. There are so many techniques, we'll call them lunar techniques that invoke the parasympathetic. So anything that's going to lengthen your exhale um, as well as alternate nostril exhales, those kinds of things, they, they help to turn on the parasympathetic branch. I'm a huge proponent of yoga nidra as, mm-hmm. as a strategy, as both an intervention as well as prevention strategy and meditation. So it's, it's really teaching people that first they can recognize that something's awry, something's off balance. With that recognition and that awareness, provide them with the tools of what to do with it. So what is a practice? What is a short, effective practice that one could do within, you know, 15 minutes that's going to help them self-regulate? And so any type of slow, conscious breathing without tension 
is going to be effective. And that's why we have yoga and, asana because it supports our breath. Yeah. And in, in, in the book, uh, Yoga Therapy for Diabetes, there's just sequence after sequence after sequence of yoga practices for different aspects of you know, type 1, type 2 diabetes, hypoglycemia, you name it. She's got really beautiful practices there. So I encourage you to pick up the book and, and look at that. From the perspective of the breath, which is a big love of mine, um, when you hold your, when you lengthen your breath, what's happening is you're giving the body more time to build up carbon dioxide, right? And yeah. one of the things that happen that I, that I talk a lot about is this, and this is what I want, I would love for you to maybe demonstrate your slow breathing practice here in a sec. But what happens with, because we sit around a lot, our rib cage gets slouched forward, the rib cage jams into the diaphragm, sort of pushes the diaphragm into an already pre-contracted position, so it really can't contract fully. So you really can't fully open up the rib cage. And since the rib cage is, think of a balloon, always wanting to exhale, squeezing the air out, your rib cage is always clamping down on your chest. So if you don't have a, the diaphragm isn't working fully to open that up, it just gets tighter, tighter, tighter. And the diaphragm is the number one pump for the lymphatic system of your whole body, particularly your belly. And um, so what ends up happening, we end up shallow over breathing oxygen in and, and our oxygen levels. I think there was one study showed that 75% of the oxygen people breathe in, they breathe out unused, right? So it's just like, we're just jamming in oxygen. We can't even come close to using. And as we keep breathing quickly, we breathe out all of our CO2 and in Ayurveda, as you know, uh, the breath retention or the kumbak on the exhalation was always used to, to, um, to, to calm people down because CO2 levels rise and CO2 is a sedative molecule. And right. if you hold your breath on the inhale, it creates more oxygen and it's for people who are really tired and need to stimulate them. So right. what you're saying is, is something that uh, a lot of our listeners are hopefully already tuned into, but I don't think they've applied that to their type two diabetes or their type one diabetes, the value of, of doing that. And in fact, taking it one step further into breath retention or kumbak, when you actually start holding your breath your CO2 level tolerance begins to build up and that's what's called intermittent hypoxia in Western medicine. And that's been shown to boost stem cells and, and increase EPO, which is what Lance Armstrong got busted for and, and nitric oxide and even balanced blood sugar and neuroplasticity. So, so it's sort of like, and you talk about in your book, um, calorie restriction as one of the tools. I'd like to talk about that next, but when you have a little bit less um, a little bit less food and a little bit less air, get comfortable with a little bit of air hunger, you build your tolerance to CO2. So you, you build your tolerance to the stress. So you don't always hyper overreact to the stress, blow out your, your HPA system and your sympathetic you know, system becomes dominant. And uh, so how critically important it is to do exactly what you just said. When I was reading your book, I was like, oh, this is perfect. This is the, the first thing you say is you have to learn how to lengthen your breath. And that is so critical because most of us overbreathe, And it's really dangerous on so many levels. You know, when you think about, you said replace you know, your disease with this diabetes book. This is exactly the, one of the, I think one of the main things we stink at breathing. We really do. And it's, and, uh, it's so critically important. Um, 
So I wondered if you could comment on that, maybe share with us a, a, a technique to lengthen the exhale. Definitely. I'll, I'll comment on it first and then I'll share yes, the technique please. for lengthening the exhale. It's interesting. There is so much, let's just call it, it's, it's like a dysfunction of the biomechanics of breathing for people. Not only are people mouth breathers, but I would say most often than not, what I see in my clients and students is an inability to exhale properly. And that might show up as strain in their inhale. And like you were mentioning, an inability to expand their thoracic cavity properly, it creates a lot of tension. But from my understanding, what it seems is that people do not understand the, the me mechanisms of how to exhale properly, how to do it in a way that's functional. What we often see for people as they're exhaling is they just contract their rib cage, right? They're just contracting up in here. But what yoga teaches us to do is to use our abdominal muscles to initiate the exhale. And it, in a way, unobstruct the breath. I mean, that's one of the definitions of, of pranayama uh, is the unobstruction of our breathing. So what I have people do is, is really work on their exhale initially. And so mm -hmm. even if our goal is to help them build their energy back up, which would be perhaps more of a, what we call a brahmana orientation, uh, with the inhales, it starts first with this langana orientation of working with the exhale, learning how to exhale with ease and in a way that is without tension, right? How long can you make your exhale and then even feel that comfort in the discomfort of the kumbhaka that you're referring to that pause or the breath suspension after the exhale. And um, so there's a few ways that we can train this, but I would say that the easiest way that one could begin to train either side of their breath, well, let's say the exhale specifically is through something called a krama breath and krama means steps. So what I'll guide you through is um, it's a three, well, we'll start with a two step and then maybe if we have time, we'll do a three step breath. And what you're doing is applying these segments of breath. So let's say for hypothetically, your exhale is six seconds. That's more or less like where studies show, like if you can make your breath six counts, that's where you start to see this benefit in your autonomic nervous system. Let's say each segment, we're gonna divide it into two, would be three counts. So you would exhale for three counts from your abdomen. Then you would pause for three counts. Then you would exhale another three counts and then pause in that breath suspension for three counts. And then when it's time to inhale, you do so slowly without hurry, rather than that gasping people have. We wanna make that transition just as easy. And once you feel comfortable with that, you can go to a three part segment or even increase this uh, the steps in between. So that would be one way to, to train it. You wanna, you wanna do a, a practice? Yeah, absolutely, let's do it. 
Okay, so let's do let's do the two part with that six counts. And so we're going to divide it into threes. Okay, so technically that will be about 12 seconds. Okay. 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 I'm going to close my eyes because that's how I have to do it. Just <laughs> okay, I'll do that too. So um, so just take a few normal breaths. Again, we want the breath to be conducted with the mouth closed. So the best thing to do is to valve the throat. This is called ujjayi. And so take a few breaths with the mouth closed, creating that gentle whisper sound in the throat. And on the inhale, you might experience that your chest, rib cage, and abdomen gently expand. On the exhale, observe the navel drawing in towards the spine so that the exhale begins in the belly. So just take a few breaths like this, familiarizing yourself with your breaths. And then take a breath in and we'll begin after the inhale. Exhale three counts by drawing your navel in. Pause for three counts. And exhale another three counts. Feel the navel squeezing in towards the spine. Maybe the sternum drops a little bit. Hold the breath out for three counts. It's important not to push out all the air and inhale slowly. Exhale, three counts. Feel the exhale begin from the navel. Pause three. Exhale, another three. Pause three comfortable empty. Inhale slowly. Let's do one more round like that. Exhale for three counts. Take about half of the breath and pause. Exhale another three counts. The navel draws in but the chest kind of lowers just a little bit and then pause for three breaths, three counts rather. and inhale slowly. Take a normal breath out. And a breath in. And even just from three breaths, you might be able to notice a, an effect from that physiologically in the body. So one can begin to train that as part of their pranayama practice starting with something that's comfortable and then working your way up as you become more comfortable with a greater threshold. The key with pranayama is never to force our breathing because that's going to undo the work. And it's also important, and this is something that I received from a teacher who is an opera singer, to not try to empty your lungs completely because that's 
that's impossible. There's always going to be a residual amount of volume in your lungs. So we want it to be a comfortable empty. And that's what's going to allow both the body, our physiology, and also the mind to relax into the process. Because the breath is our link. It's that link between the conscious and the subconscious. It's the link between our impulses and our choices. And so this is our ability as we're in the midst of stress, whether that's diabetes or life, diabetes is life, to have more consciousness in our choices, to be more in control. And so whether it is that we're training here with our autonomic responses, and it's shown that, you know, training your breath, slow breathing is, it's going to help improve autonomic function with diabetes, but it's also going to greatly help to reduce our risk for cardiovascular disease. And we haven't talked about this yet, but most people with diabetes, they're not going to die of diabetes. It's cardiovascular disease. Explain that. Explain that. Well, you know, the risk of hyperglycemia. This is the risk of a life, even with relatively good glycemic control. Diabetes is a vascular disease. And so hyperglycemia, excess glucose in your bloodstream, it, it damages um, your blood vessels. And so we right. can- through, through glycation, right? So that's the yeah. mechanism for that? Can you explain so. to folks what that means and, and maybe talk about the A1C and how they can kind of keep an eye on what that, what that, that glycation looks like? So A1C is the average of your blood sugar levels, your glucose levels over three months. And what mm -hmm. studies show and what doctors recommend is that if an individual can achieve an A1C under 7%, that they are going to greatly reduce their risk of morbidity and early mortality. So when I say morbidity is like the onset of other diabetes related complications, like cardiovascular disease for one, um, but even cancer, uh, Alzheimer's disease is another one. There, there's so many connections, right? And um, so achieving an A1C under 7% will greatly reduce that risk, right? But anything higher than that is going to increase your risk especially for heart disease. And so mm -hmm. it's one of the things that as someone with diabetes, what we need to be consciously considering at all times is what our glycemic levels are. However, um, I think the challenge for so many people, and, and this is something that I, I wanna get into a little bit further, should we have time, is adhering to those guidelines because um, because they're behavioral. Let's do that. And you know, and what I love about the A1C test is it's actually a measure of your glycation. They actually take a you know a slide and they measure how many of your hemoglobin molecules are stuck to a protein molecule, which means glycation. And the glycation is 
is the smoking gun for all the degenerative conditions that you talked about, Alzheimer's and cognitive decline and vascular issues. So they measure on the, on the slide and they look, oh, there's, you know, out of 100, there's five that are glycated, that's 5%, you know, and they measure the actual. So what you're actually, which is really cool about, which I love that test, even though they extrapolate and say it's your average over three months, which is kind of really interesting. But what I really love about it it's measuring actually how much you're glycating, which is the smoking gun for the degenerative concern. So if you can keep that glycation number down, you're not, you know, your blood sugars could be whatever in the morning, after meals, they usually go together, but at least you're keeping, like you said, that number under seven, you're really protecting your, your, your whole body from this, from this particular damage, which I, which is why I, I, I love that. I love that test for, for that reason, because it makes sense. A lot of people don't know that that's what's actually happening. Um, so it's a really good indicator. And you can buy a, a A1C test, you know, on online for five, ten dollars or something to kind of get a quick look at what that number looks like. Um, but yeah. Oh, and by the way, thank you for that breathing. I didn't say that was really, really amazing. And I think that um, you know, as we do that, and as you as you lengthen the breath like that you you can you know you can feel the whole what happens and when i wrote my first book body mind sport which is about nose breathing versus mouth breathing we did research on how it, that nose breathing creates a brainwave coherence and alpha in the brain and accesses more parasympathetic activation and one of the things is called it's called an abdominal diaphragmatic cardiac massage so when you're exhaling mm -hmm. you're using your abdomen which pushes up onto your diaphragm which pushes, which activates the vagal response and triggers the body's vagal response. So it's a diaphragmatic abdominal, uh, diaph abdominal diaphragmatic cardiac massage is what's actually happening. Flips your brain into an alpha state. And I guarantee you, if I had an oximeter reading on my finger, you would all would see that just by doing your technique, you would go into uh, your, your, the blood sugar, the, I'm sorry, the, the, the oxygen in your blood, because you're holding your breath a little bit more the CO2 level would dump all that into your tissues and it would create, it absolutely dump your tissue. Your, your, so you have all this oxygenation in your tissues, which does the repair, but it's your oxygen in your blood would start to go down and you'd go from like 98% oxygen saturation to like in the 80s. And when you're in the 80s for short periods of time, that's the intermittent hypoxia, which is just as powerful in terms of Nobel Prize winning science and and all the repair. So we're, you're, like you said, we're hacking into the body's repair chemistry, which is just such a beautiful, absolutely simple way that you did that. Just then all of a sudden, without even really feeling like you're holding your breath and a little bit of air hunger, but you just know where your limit is. You stay in comfort because if you go into discomfort, that's fight or flight. So you just, like you said, completely undermine the whole effect because as soon as you go into you strain or, or, or push your body, that's the opposite nervous system we're engaging, which is kind of really interesting. So, so yeah, so thank you for that. I just wanted to help people understand the value of what they just learned and make sure you practice that because it's a simple thing you can do in your car while you're waiting for to pick up your kids from soccer practice. I mean, it's, you know, super easy. Um, so um, that said, you talked about behavior. And I'd also like to talk, I'd like to talk about that. And I'd like to also, you know, talk about the idea of fasting and it's what you know about for type one and type two. Does it help? Does it not help? So let's dive into that. 
you know okay. I could talk to you all day long about all this stuff. Too. I could talk to you all day long too. Yeah. Your brilliant mind. Um, you know, my one of my main teachers is is Rod Stryker, and he oh, nice. just says that you're one of the most fun people to talk to. So he was absolutely right about that. So behavior, look, here's the deal. We were just talking about 7%. 7%, it's not normal blood sugars. However, that's what's going to greatly reduce our risk. But half, if not less, I think it's a third, only a third of type ones and about half of diagnosed type twos actually achieve that. Only half. And that's the statistic wow. for the United States. And that so what's statistic- the, How? What's causing that? What's causing that? So that's the question. And that's kind of what I was proposing in my book. It's like, look, we the advent of technology in the last 20 years for diabetes is just, it's been incredible. You know, since I've been diabetic in the last 23 years, I've my insulin pump has changed. I now wear something called a continuous glucose monitor that reads my blood sugars in real time. So I have like a graph and a metric, and that's a closed loop system, which is talking to my insulin pump and it's telling me telling my insulin pump what to do. It's, it's like I'm completely bionic. Um, and the technology for type two diabetes as well has vastly improved, but this stat has not. So what the question remains is, well, why? Why is it that despite all these technological advances, are people still not achieving this very important metric? And so I ask, well, it's, it's psychological, it's behavioral. What diabetes is that is so different, I think, than other diseases where, you know, you take a pill or you go to the doctor and then, you know, you're supposed to just go on with your life is that diabetes impacts every dimension of a person. And so from what they're putting into their body to the impressions that they're taking in from their environment, the people that they spend time with, their stress levels, their relationship with the illness itself, all of these things are impacting self-care. And how do we, as holistic practitioners, help individuals awaken not only to that vested interest in taking care of themselves, but to help them switch that part of their mind that sees self-care and diabetes management as a chore to something that is an act of self-love. And mm. it's making that switch, um, I feel is the answer for people of all types of diabetes to living in balance and, and, and going in a way like through the back door, not through the front door of like, let's look just at A1C how can we go through the back door and make this through this act of like living with it and caring and being actually kind of excited about the science experiment of learning like how different foods affect us, how different exercise impacts us and developing this intimate relationship with not only diabetes, but with ourselves. So I, I see that yoga and Ayurveda are ways that someone can learn how to do that. Reminds me of uh, kind of a hermetic effect, you know, where 
you you uh, you become comfortable with the um, what would be normally uncomfortable. You know. Yeah. You know, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger is what it means. But that's at the extreme level. But um, you know, having this, you know, falling in love with the process of this by actually realizing by you know and loving yourself in this through is sort of reminding me of of uh of this effect where you become we have a you have a a response to you have the ability to control your response to the stimuli your normal stimulation is oh my diabetes is bad and therefore the stress levels rise right um, you go into a cold shower, you're like, I'm freezing, it's gonna, and you're already freezing and shivering before you get into the cold shower or you eat high spicy food or whatever. But if you can realize that there's, there's the, the stimulus and then there's your response to the stimulus, which is under your control, and there's a space there, you know, uh, sort of like the space uh, between your response to that stimuli. It's sort of like the space between the breath that you just talked about it gives you a time to be in a place where you're in a non-thinking space where that consciousness can expand. And, and it's, Ayurveda is all about these gaps and these spaces, these sandhi, you know, where the space between the season, the space between the breath, the space between the words and the space between your reaction to the stimuli. So I, I just loved how you said that. It's like, that's like, you know, of all the things you could talk about from behavior, you talk about how we have to love this process, which is really realizing that this crazy mind of ours is triggered and preconditioned to respond in a certain way to a certain stimulus. And we have control over that. And I wonder how much, is that what you're talking about? And, and how much, if so, it, how much of that, how much does that have an effect on the outcome? See, That's exactly what I'm effect. talking about. I think it can greatly have an effect on the outcome. Just from my own experience working with people, I see that transformation in their relationship mm -hmm. with it, that perception change of threat to non-threat, right? That's, that's that space where yeah. one, if we're training our nervous system regularly to downregulate, we're doing our breathing practices, we're taking care of ourselves, we're eating well, we're eating food that is easy to digest, we're helping our blood sugars stay in better control. So on one level, we're, we're promoting that balance, but on the other level, what we're starting to do is to see that, you know, this constant bombardment of requirements, of disappointments, of the highs and lows, that we can do everything that we think we can, but ultimately at the end of the day, it might not always be enough. How can our practice support this longevity of, of self-care and, and transform this from being a burden to, wow, actually I have diabetes and because of that, I'm actually healthier than most people because of it. The silver lining. It's yeah. a silver lining, yeah, definitely. So you yeah. wanted to talk about fasting. Well, I wanna ask one before you go there. Yeah. You mentioned easy to digest food a couple of times. Yeah. And, I, and, and you didn't talk a lot about, I thought that was quite a, quite a feat for you to talk about, have a whole book on diabetes and not really talk about food. I thought that was quite, quite you know, which, means, <laughs> which tells me how much you have to say about yoga, breathing, you know, Ayurveda, you know, meditation and everything, how important those things are. 
And as you said, for another book down the road, which I think yeah. you should write, I would love to see that. But but you mentioned easy to digest food. So give us a you know give us the broad brush on what that means. Okay. So the more complex, and what I mean by complex is like the higher the carbohydrate plus fat plus protein, the, the more complex, the harder it is for our body to digest it. Okay. So for me with type one diabetes, for instance, what I'm trying to do is actually eat balanced food that is going to require the least amount of energy for my body to digest it. Because if I'm eating something with a lot of carbohydrates, for instance, and like unrefined carbohydrates, or excuse me, refined carbohydrates, I'm getting them confused in my mind here, but like white flour versus whole wheat flour. And then I add a whole bunch of fat to that. The rate of my digestion is going to be so slow. And I'm not going to be able to take insulin in a way that I can have the foresight to determine when my body's going to digest that food. I'm going to have a higher risk of either ending up high or ending up low after the fact. And it's taxing my body. So if I can eat foods that are fresh, that are easy to digest, like so they're cooked with warming spices. For type one diabetes, as I'm sure you understand, it's, it's a vata condition, right? So it's easily aggravated. If the foods that I have help to reduce some of that vata and help support my internal fire, that agni to digest it, it helps me support this process that I'm already trying to conduct um, with my mind that my body normally would do biologically without any thought. So I hope that answers your question, but what, what we're just trying to do is optimize our digestion. Don't right, eat a lot right. of food and don't eat it all at night. Like you said, like the worst thing you can do is have a big meal and then just sit on the couch. Right. And that works for type one and type two diabetes, obviously type, you know, yeah. or pre-diabetes or healthy people. I mean, this is how healthy. you, how you wear out the, wear out the system is by, by eating these massive meals that are, that are very complex with food, many different types of foods combined, many different types of refined food combined. And then we spend hours trying to digest it. And, uh, and that puts just a lot of stress on your system. So what you, I think what you're saying is that if we can, in a preventative sense or a therapeutic sense, you know, do what Ayurveda says, eat, you know, to your stomach is, you know, 70% full. Don't fill your stomach up, you know, take time and relax and eat your food, eat whole foods, preferably, <coughs> excuse me, in season. Right. Um, yeah. And, um, and, and from the, um, and from the idea of Ayurveda was, was always a big fan of cooking their food which means it's help, it helps, it helps pre-digest the food for you. So it gives it makes your body not have to work as hard. And when you're looking at longevity, which Ayurveda was really all about longevity because the goal of Ayurveda wasn't just to live a long life. It was that you need to live a long life to figure out how to, you know, understand this crazy mind and free yourself from all of its needs and attack trashness and all the things that we, 
that we think we need to be happy and satisfied, right? So we need to live long before we get wise, and then we can finally get content. Um, but uh, so we, that's the reason why I think Ayurveda was all about longevity. It wasn't like you know some like you know mark you know mark on your belt buckle that you end up living long. That's not the point. The point is being healthy, so you can have a this. I always think of this body as an instrument. That Ayurveda, that is a subtle instrument, subtle energy perceiving instrument more able to perceive subtle energy and i think i watched some of your youtubes and videos and i think you are you totally know what i'm talking about because i can tell that you are so into the subtle energy of it and i think people should really go to your website watch your videos and really learn from you because because understanding the, and it's something i have to continue to remind myself you know to kind of slow it down and you know become and perceive the subtle because that's where all the magic happens in Ayurveda. I think their 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 mantra is: the more subtle it is, the more powerful it is. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. So so it yeah. does when so you've anyway. been shown it, right? <clears throat> to to see right. the subtle requires you... practice, and it requires guidance because it's so hard to see. Yeah, and I think that's why you're such a brilliant teacher because I really feel like you totally connect on that level, which not everybody does. Maybe it's your your kapha nature, which is so peaceful. And if everybody's watching this this inter, this this interview, whatever we call it, um, you can tell that you know that, that uh, Evan's um, whole demeanor is super peaceful and super calm. You know, I get like super excited and like talk too fast all the time. And, but you know, that's a really like, I always talk about pulling back the bow and being calm and then taking that calm with you into activity. And I think that you've really modeled that behavior in such a beautiful way. So I really appreciate that. And I think that's, as I watch your videos, that's how you teach as well. So it's, it's not always common to see that. And I'm sure that's why you're so successful and and going to be more successful, not just for the diabetic, diabetic world, but for, for anyone who wants to understand what Ayurveda yoga is really about. It's about really refining this instrument, this body to perceive the subtle, because that's how we're wired. That's what we're here to be able to do. Um, but yeah, let's, uh, let's talk about fasting and calorie restriction and how does that apply here? Fasting is really helpful. It's really helpful. It's something that as a person with type one diabetes, I try to do a fasting day, a full day, like at least once a month. Actually, you know, I was introduced to you. The first thing I read about you was years ago, a young woman had written an article with type one diabetes. I don't know if you recall it. And she had done a pancha karma with you. Oh yeah, in yoga journal, I think it was written up, yeah. yeah. And it was the first time I had heard about pancha karma. And I, I know I'm kind of like going in a completely different direction, but it got me thinking about that. Um, and how she was saying that she couldn't eat any fat during the time. And that like lit up this thing in my head that fat was part of the issue. And I, I know I'm going in a completely different direction with this. Um, but okay, that's kind of like where my diet has has led me to achieve the best blood glucose levels of my life is limiting fat and then doing these times. Yeah, 
limiting fat, not like crazy, um, but going towards the lower fat, which might be the opposite of what a lot of people out there hear with diabetes that, you know, you should actually be low carb. But I've found that by taking time of like, even that 13 hour window, I'm not a huge intermittent faster, but I try for around like 12 to 13 hours to optimize my body. Yeah. To just let it digest the food because my digestion is so slow anyways, as it is being kapha, but also, you know, 23 years of diabetes, there's, there's some autonomic damage to my digestion. Just it's, it's slow. So reducing fat and having those times of fast, at least on a daily, but if not like a full day of going just liquid once a month is very, very helpful um, for optimizing my digestion and my metabolism. And back to the fat thing, I've been able to reduce the amount of insulin that I take just by reducing the amount of fat I'm eating. So that's mind boggling to me that by reducing your fat, you stabilize your blood sugar. Cause as you said, everybody's thinking the opposite. You should say you get rid of the carbs and eat fat, become ketogenic and you stabilize your blood sugar, which also works. It also does work. Help me understand that more. Maybe also, can you give us a, a little rundown of what you actually eat in the day? Like, what does that look like? Yeah. So what it's doing is, you know, fat, it slows down digestion and it can also increase insulin resistance because what's happening from, and this is something I need to research more. So I don't know if I have the right language for it. Um, but the, the triglycerides in a way are like blocking the insulin receptors. So for me, I try to not necessarily like abstain from fat, but I, I limit it. I'm conscious about how much fat I'm eating. I eat whole foods. I eat grains. Morning, I start with oatmeal, but not just like your typical oatmeal. It's, it's like got some coconut in there. So a little bit of fat, it's got groats, it's got chia seeds. So something that's going to take time for my body to digest. It's not going to like create a huge spike in my blood sugars, a postprandial spike, which is the spike that you have after you're eating or after you've eaten a meal during digestion. So it kind of slows that down. Lunch will be something more vegetable based. I, I, I stick to like hummus, um, garbanzo beans, even like a big tortilla doing a wrap, but having it, you know, be lower end of fat, not a lot of raw food. If anything, I'll, I'll throw in some spinach in there, but not a lot of raw dinner. Like last night, my husband's a chef, by the way. Um, he, He's learned how to cook for someone with diabetes. It was very challenging for him at first, but we had um, spaghetti squash, but like a bowl and then roasted different types of vegetables. We had like kale and then we had um, edamame and did a big bowl with like kimchi on top and maybe a little bit of rice. So like 
not super high, even carbohydrates either, but just good quality food, just well-balanced food. And yes, of course it requires some effort, but no, what doesn't that's worth doing? Yeah, no, that's, that's beautiful. It's sort of like, you know, you know, a reminder of what the actual Mediterranean diet is. It's not an extreme ketogenic diet. It's not extreme high protein or low carb diet. It's just a really balanced diet that gives you a little bit of everything. Um, you're not taking tablespoons of coconut oil or tablespoons of olive oil, right? You're just having a, a, a do you eat olive oil and coconut oil or is that, or yeah. is it coconut flakes on your oatmeal? Coconut flakes, I, I lean more towards like olive oil versus coconut oil, just because um, I'm, I'm an Ashkenazi Jew. So I've, I've got um, high cholesterols, also genetic factors. So I'm, I'm very aware of that. And I try to limit my, my um, saturated fats as well. Wow. Wow. Fascinating. You know, and I think what you're, what, you know, what, what you've done is you, I think what everyone really does sort of have to do in this day and age is as you get older, you know, the first half, you know, most folks can make it through the first half. I call it to 50 without doing a whole lot of anything and they can get by. And, but then as soon as they get into the second half over 50, you, you better start taking, you know, um, uh, you know, taking care to really understand the, the, the unique individual nature of your body, what it can do and what it can't do, what its likes and what its dislikes are, where the weak links are and begin to, and you probably know them from the first half and you have to start taking it, taking, you know, your health really seriously. And as a type one diabetic, you've done that. You've taken your health so seriously from the very beginning. So now, you know, talk about that instrument analogy. You really have, under, you really understand how to keep this body in balance, even though you know, it's missing, you know, its ability to make a really important piece, which is the delivery of the main fuel supply that we have in this body. And you figured out a way to do that. And you've shared it with so many other people. I just love your work. I think it's really great. You know, the book is Yoga Therapy for Diabetes by Evan Soraka. I think um, you really all should pick it up. Uh, watch her YouTube. Evan, where do we, what's your website? Like, how do people get a hold of you? You can get a hold of me at sorokayogatherapy.com and on my YouTube YouTube channel, which is Soroka Yoga Therapy. So you can check out some of my videos there, go to the website, check out the book. Even if you don't have diabetes, I think it can be a great learning tool for anyone who wants to learn how to use yoga yoga therapy specifically to manage stress, to work with optimizing their health. Yeah, no, I think absolutely. If you don't have diabetes, there's a really good chance that you or someone you know is going to get diabetes or type two diabetes or become pre-diabetic, you know, as you go through your life. So really understanding that condition. And it's really an epidemic of our time with all the processed food and the overeating and the sedentary lifestyle. You know, we go work out for an hour, do yoga for an hour, but the rest of the time we're sitting in a car in front of a computer or on a couch. This is like a bad thing. You know, and it really does, you know, accelerate these these chronic diseases that are that are epidemic that are really taking us out. And uh, so anyway, gosh, I, I, you know, thank you so much for, for joining us. Thanks for writing that book and everything you do. And again, um, the website again is what? SorokaYogatherapy.com. Okay, cool. 
Evan, thank you so much for this great having you and hope to have you back. Thank you so much for the next book. Exactly. This recording is brought to you by LifeSpa, where ancient Ayurvedic wisdom meets modern science. Get access to free health video newsletters by Dr. John at LifeSpa.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the FDA. These products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.